Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Is there anything better on a hot day than a tall glass of nearly ice-cold white liquid? Or maybe a mug of frothy brown fluid to dunk your cookies in? Dan, you say, why aren't you using the word milk? We all know you're talking about milk. But are we? Because at this point, I'm not confident that there are many people left that can correctly identify and distinguish real milk from fake milk. And in this case, I'm not only talking literally, but also figuratively, or more accurately, theologically as well. A newborn baby traditionally moves from his mother's breast milk to soft foods and other beverages to solid foods, and if raised correctly, to a 32-ounce ribeye loaded baked potato, and I tend to go for the mac and cheese, as vegetables are kind of blick. In the same way, the baby Christian, as we're told in the Bible, will move from the spiritual milk of the word through ever-increasing levels of understanding, eventually greedily chomping their way through the meat of the word. But what happens if we don't use actual milk at the onset, but a wholly inadequate imitation liquid, either devoid of the necessary nutrients, or even worse, something that's slowly poisoning the newborn? Unfortunately, these days, fake milk seems to be what's on the menu. On today's episode, first we're going to restate the obvious, then we're going to suffer from theological malnutrition. So grab your imaginary dishes and fake utensils, and place your Bible back on the shelf. You won't be needing that today. Now pour yourself a tall, frothy glass of whatever color imitation fluid you'd like, because here we moo. I like food. I think it's quite clear, simply by looking at me, that I like food. But I am not a foodie. I'm just a fat man who happens to be a very picky eater, but likes to eat mass quantities of the things that I like. That said, I do not like to have my food messed with. I'm not saying that I need organically raised, cruelty-free, free-range, whatever. I just want my food to be my food. To give you an idea of where we're going today, I don't want almond milk, as almonds don't make milk. I don't want plant meat, as plants aren't made of meat. They're what meat eats. I don't want to eat bugs, and I definitely don't want lab-grown meat, as to me, having a basic idea of what they're doing, they're basically growing a meaty tumor, and that just sounds gross. But of course, it doesn't matter what I want, because the settled science reality is settled, that the planet is boiling, that heat death is imminent, unless we do just everything differently, and do it differently right now. If we don't, we'll all die, and food is part of everything. So for years, you've had people that actually care about the planet, I mean, not not you, clearly, <laughs> working on various ways of trying to feed humanity in a world where it's impossible to grow food, either plant or animal, and we've had to come up with all of these food alternatives in order to do it, or something. But as someone who would gladly have removed the lug nuts if I knew how, I'm happy to see that the wheels are coming off the bus 
apparently. But will it be enough to derail this entire foolish venture into alternative sources of food? Well, time will tell. This is akin to the great eggs are bad, eggs are good, or butter is better, margarine is better, wars of the late 20th century. The bottom line is that we'd like to eat what we'd like to eat, and we'd like healthy food to be healthy, and unhealthy food to be unhealthy. Well, okay, with that intro, and with the understanding that uh, your views on the upcoming topics may differ from mine, and it's okay to be wrong, let's get eating, as we have a rather large buffet in front of us to consume. We're not going to spend a lot of time on any of these, just enough to get the idea. To begin this podcast feast, let's cleanse the palate with something found on Insider via MSN.com. Headline, new research says cow's milk is better for you than oat milk or other plant-based vegan alternatives. (laughs) What the heck you say? Get right out of town with that. You're telling me that milk, like real milk, from a cow who naturally creates milk that we've been drinking for approximately forever is better than oat, almond, or other plant-based squeezings that we've processed, chemically or not, and called milk. Well, I'm open to hearing about this insanity, but color me milky white with skepticism. The article starts with their three main points. Quote, cow's milk and non-dairy milk are not nutritionally equal, according to new research. Scientists found that plant-based milks often have less vitamin D, calcium, and protein. But plant-based milk drinkers don't need to despair. There are other ways to get these essential nutrients. It kills me, and you'll see this with all the food alternatives, that people honestly believe a food that's not a food, that's engineered to look, feel, and or taste eh, somewhat like a food, will be the same nutritionally as the real thing. In what world does that make sense? I mean, not this one, apparently. So, there was a presentation given at the American Society for Nutrition Conference in Boston, which stated that plant-based milks, almond, oat, pistachio, cashew, and others, just aren't the same as good old cow milk. One of the researchers, a scientist with the implication of common sense, stated that she always thought that these plant milk producing companies were trying to make their milk the same as cow milk. But no, shockingly, there's apparently no standard out there as to what you can call milk. So she said that after this research, she now believes that, quote, flavor and mouthfeel and other properties are probably what's mostly driving the development in these products and not so much like if they are a nutritional match for cow's milk. I'd say their largest driver is likely profit, especially from those gullible enough to think they're actually doing something. I mean, if you like these other plant drippings, more power to you, but I I sure hope you're not thinking that they're equivalent to milk, like you think you're getting milk-level nutrition from these things. The research actually looked at 237 plant-based milk products from 23 manufacturers and found that only 28 were comparable in vitamin D, calcium, and protein compared to cow's milk. But not everyone is on board with these findings. Dr. Christopher Gardner, director of the Stanford Diabetes Research Center, called the idea that cow milk is nutritionally better. Oh, and I'm sorry for using this language, but I mean, this is a quote, and I feel I need to quote him accurately. He felt it was, quote, bunk. Then he went on to make a different argument, not 
vitamin D, calcium, or protein. No, rather, that the plant-based fluids had no cholesterol, had low levels of saturated fat, and some have fiber. So, so see? But as their third point stated, it's okay. Experts say you get plenty of protein elsewhere, so you don't need it from milk, and you can probably get vitamin D and calcium elsewhere also. I don't know, maybe through pills or something? You know, when I was younger, I used to drink milk just, I mean, all the time. A lot of milk. Now, I don't anymore because of the calories mostly, which aren't bad, but they all add up. But my friends, my friends used to make fun of me for wanting a big glass of milk to cool down after playing softball or basketball or whatever, rather than a big glass of water. They used to make me feel bad about myself, and I'd cry and I'd cry. I mean, not really, but you could imagine the mental anguish I could have felt if I had felt it. Well, found on KEYT.com, headline, Which drink is best for hydration? Hint, it isn't water. Yeah, it's not water, you filthy dehydrated water suckers. The researchers from Scotland's St. Andrews University performed a study of how various beverages hydrates the body. Water does fine, they found. But what actually helps the body to hydrate better and stay hydrated longer is something with a little bit of sugar, fat, or protein. One factor for hydration is how much you drink, and this is common across all beverages. The more you drink, the faster the liquid passes out of the stomach, which is where it needs to be in order to be absorbed into the bloodstream, which is what hydrates you. But what's not common across beverages is the nutrient composition of the beverage. Milk contains sugar lactose, protein, and fat, which helps it stay in the stomach longer, allowing hydration to occur over a longer period of time. Milk also has sodium, quote, which acts like a sponge and holds onto water in the body and results in less urine produced. They also found that, I think as we all know, fruit juices and sodas, drinks with larger quantities of sugars, actually causes the intestines to pump water into the beverage to dilute the sugars, which leads to dehydration. Now, with regard to alcohol, the higher concentration of alcohol in the beverage, the more dehydrated you'll get, which is basically the same as caffeine. The more caffeine you consume, the more dehydrated you become. So you decide. Assuming you're not lactose intolerant, which I would maintain, seriously, I'm not joking here, I would maintain that's a curse from the fall, as you know, the alternative theory is that we evolved to become lactose tolerant, and um, that to use a word I heard one time, is uh, bunk. Assuming you have no issue with dairy, you tell me, real milk or fake milk? I can tell you that after reading this about hydration, knowing how much milk I used to drink, knowing that most of what I drink today are zero-based caffeine-loaded pops, or sodas or Cokes if you're from the South, maybe I need to work into my caloric intake a glass of milk a day or something. I don't know. It may actually do me some good. Let's keep moving, shall we? Speaking of cows... One of the largest contributors to the destruction of our planet, as we all know, it's time to just stop using cows for everything, right? Because they're the problem. The best thing for the planet would be to just let cows run wild or to slaughter all the cows. I'm not really sure. It's hard to keep up with the tree huggers, to be honest. But, uh, but what we know for sure is that we shouldn't eat cow meat, and we don't have to anymore. Oh, no, sir. We have vegan meat. Not only can plants make milk, they can make meat as well. Of course, the joke is that if vegans hate the idea of eating meat, why are they making things that look and taste like meat so that they can eat it? I mean, like, dude, just eat a burger. Have you even had a ribeye? Let's take a little rabbit trail here, shall we? 
just the other day, we found out that a vegan food diet influencer, a Russian woman promoting the raw vegan food diet on her TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram outlets by the name of Jana Dear, apparently died on July 21st, shortly after seeking medical attention. She died of starvation and malnutrition. If you see a picture of her, she looks to be anorexic, but I don't think there's any indication that she was. She was nothing but skin and bones. I mean, unbelievably unhealthy looking. Friends and family apparently begged her to go seek medical treatment for months, but she ran away from them. She ignored them. She could never quite find the time. And for the last four years, apparently she's lived on fruits, sunflower seed sprouts, fruit smoothies, and juices. Some people claim that for years now, all she ate was jackfruit and dorian, which is the fruit that smells like decaying flesh. Either way, she clearly was not getting the nutrition her body needed to survive. A vegan diet can work. We used to be vegans, although, I mean, who knows how the nutrition of fruits and vegetables before the flood compared to those after the flood, but for some reason, God gave us meat. Anyway, because of an unhealthy obsession with this healthy lifestyle, so-called, she's now dead horrible. Let's go back to our plant-based vegan meat. This was supposed to be a vegan alternative to meat, specifically hamburger, so as to eat healthier. Because as we all know, red meat bad, plants good. And it would help to save the planet because cows bad, plants, well, once again, good. But is that what we see? Now, I've never eaten a plant-based burger for a few reasons. First, I know how extra fiber attempts to murder me, and I try to avoid that if at all possible. But second, and probably even more importantly, if I'm going to spend my $5, or what does a burger cost now, 15 bucks, I want a nice burger. I can't bring myself to waste it on a pretend burger when the real thing is literally just, it's just right there, and it's guaranteed to be better. I mean, anywhere from just a little bit better to infinitely better. Like I said, I'm a very picky eater. I know what I like, and I tend to always get the things I like. I'll venture out a little bit, but not too far. And plant meat is really a bit too far. But for those that feel plant meat is the healthier, better option, are you sure? According to an article found on amymyersmd.com headline, Why Fake Meat is a Problem, Not a Solution. The makeup of the fake meat can be problematic. First, they're full of additives, like modified potato starch and cultured dextrose. These are heavily processed additives that could contribute to things like high blood sugar. They're mixed with corn, which could contribute to leaky gut and immune dysfunction. They're full of gluten as a binding agent, and we know, for some reason, gluten allergies are apparently a big thing right now. They use legumes and pea protein, like green peas, don't think gross, which can actually react with gluten and cause inflammation. And they use soy, which apparently, and I had no idea, a lot of people have allergies to and could also disrupt hormones and suppress thyroid function. Additionally, they don't actually help the environment. Growing and processing the various ingredients for plant meat are not environmentally neutral. Also, by eating plant meat, you're avoiding fats and cholesterol, right? Well, I mean, sure, if you're eating a lot of fatty meat, but if you eat lean meat, you're not really increasing any risk, and the meat contains proteins and vitamins and minerals that you won't find in a nice, juicy plant burger. In fact, plant meat is, quote, missing key beneficial fatty acids, vitamins, and minerals found in animal protein, such as vitamin B12. Additionally, Hema iron is the most bioavailable form of iron, and it can only be found in real animal protein. 
Here's an interesting point, as it seems with just about everything being shoved out to the consumer these days, we really have no idea what the long-term effects of plant meat will be. Quote, GMOs are a cause for concern from the soy and fake meat. There is little research on the long-term effects of the ingredient soy leghemoglobin because it was only recently extracted from soybean roots and modified for food processing before Impossible Foods meat products. Studies on rats fed soy leghemoglobin showed unexplained changes in weight and inflammation markers in the blood. Well, that sounds good. Finally, fake meat is full of sodium as a preservative. Just, I mean, just loaded with sodium. Nearly 400 milligrams of sodium in a single patty. This is compared to a four-ounce patty of 85% ground beef with about 75 milligrams of sodium. Thankfully, the consumer is seeing through the lies and rejecting this plant-based stuff. Beyond Meat, probably the most widely known fake meat maker, was worth $14 billion when it went public. Now it's down to $700 million. That's 5% of what it started as. People are just done with it. Looking at the numbers, in 2022, they lost 8% of their sales as compared to 2021, which isn't a large amount, although no company strives to contract in sales. But the bigger issue is that only 63% of the buyers were repeat customers, meaning that a rather large percentage of customers were simply trying the fake meat. Novelty or curiosity is satisfied relatively quickly, and then you have no market to venture into anymore. For those opting to not repeat their purchase, taste is the biggest reason they won't be buying again, followed by texture and smell, ick, and cost. For other consumers that are trying to eat healthy, they get that glazed eyes, deer in the headlight look when they are trying to make their way through the ingredient list, whereas ground beef has two ingredients, lean beef and fat, and those two percentage numbers add up to 100%. So again, look, this is your call. If fake meat is your jam, more power to you. But if you're doing it because you think it's healthier, it's not. If you think it's saving the planet, it's not. So if those are your reasons, go get yourself a nice juicy burger. They've missed you almost as much as you've missed them. Moving on, probably the biggest push that's gearing up and starting to gain some steam is eating bugs. The UN Environmental Goons, the World Economic Forum, and just about every greenie out there thinks that we should be eating bugs, you know, in order to save the planet, and because there just isn't enough food out there. Just ignore the fact that more people globally die from obesity-related diseases than starvation or malnutrition, you know, for the first time in history, which should tell you that clearly we're not struggling for food production, despite the global elitist efforts. But found on letstalkscience.ca headline... Should we eat bugs? Now, this would be a short article if it were me writing this. <laughs> no, we shouldn't, with the caveat that sometimes in certain power sports or other sports, we may swallow a bug, in which case we should be grossed out and tell everyone around us, I just swallowed a bug. <laughs> End of article. Shockingly, the Canadian site didn't go that direction. I point out that this is Canadian, as Canada is farther down the road of shoving bugs into school meals and foods in general than we are in the U.S., well, this article starts, quote, What's tasty, abundant, and high in protein and vitamins? Bugs! Bugs feed about 2 billion people each day. They also hold promise for food security and sustainability. Now, I'd say, who cares? If people want to eat bugs, I don't really care. Just don't shove them onto me. 
The article says that we used to eat bugs all the time, but then farming and livestock raising took over and people decided not to eat bugs. So let me point out that once again, from an evolutionary worldview, they're correct. From a correct biblical worldview, no, sorry. Adam and Eve ate uh, of the fruits, likely the vegetation of the garden. And then after the fall, we know that Cain was a farmer. Abel raised livestock, although not for food. We also know that after the floodwaters subsided and Noah and his family disembarked the ark, that God allowed for the eating of meat. So that was 4,500 years ago or so. And then we know that there were certain things, including insects that were clean and unclean for the Israelite people. And then we know that God, somewhere around, what, 40-ish A.D., opened the menu wide open for Peter and thus Christians. The wicked people between Adam and Noah likely ate meat before God allowed it to Noah. The Gentiles likely ate whatever they found to be tasty. So with God opening up the table to Peter, that got everyone potentially on the same playing field with regard to food. But this article isn't going to look at this from a biblical worldview, no. So they say that as of now, the most popular insects to eat are, and I'm sorry if you're listening to this around mealtime, as I really don't mean to make you hungrier than you are currently, but they are beetles and caterpillars and bees, ants, grasshoppers, and crickets. Mmm... <laughs> So the current discussion is about saving the planet, once again, and providing protein to people. So rather than gathering insects, the view is now that we should be farming them, raising them like livestock. Their pitch is that for a kilogram of beef, it takes 400 square meters of land, whereas a kilogram of crickets only needs 30 square meters. It takes 2,200 liters of water for 100 grams of beef and about one liter for 100 grams of crickets. Plus, crickets emit much less methane than cows. So, you know, global warming. Now, my counter-argument would be, yeah, but cows ain't crickets. <laughs> Game, set, match, really, on that one. As for nutrition, well, they say that crickets and beef have about the same protein, but crickets have about twice the amount of iron and 20 times the amount of calcium. Although, to be honest, I've never heard anyone say that they needed to eat some beef to get some of that sweet calcium. Looking at different sites, the iron content of crickets versus beef is questionable at best, with one site showing beef to be twice the content of Crickets, completely opposite of our Canadian site. According to an article on PubMed, a number of animal proteins and a number of insect proteins were compared, and when looking at the average for nutritional values, insects were higher in calories, which is your energy, higher in protein, higher in fat, higher in fiber, as animal meat has no fiber, but also higher in cholesterol and lower in nutrition per calorie. But of course, that's the mix of bugs and meats that they used for comparison. Again, I leave this up to you. If you want to eat bugs, I don't think there's any reason not to, but don't mandate it. Don't tell me you're going to save the planet, and don't tell me that people are starving because we can't produce enough food. None of that is true or real. And bottom line, I'm not eating bugs. And finally on our menu is something I consider to be even worse than bugs. Lab-grown meat. The FDA has approved this meat, but should we ever really eat it? Again, the answer is fairly simple. In my correct opinion, no. No, we should never eat this. But let's back up a bit. What exactly is lab-grown meat? Well, let's go to VeryWellHealth.com headline. FDA says lab-grown meat is safe to eat, but is it healthy? I guess I'd first take issue with the FDA telling me it's safe to eat, as personally, since the COVID so-called vaccine that's not a vaccine in any way debacle, I don't trust the FDA like I once did. But moving past that little quibble, what is this stuff exactly? Well, the site starts by saying that when you eat meat, you're eating the muscle of an animal 
and animals raised for meat use a lot of water and land and food, and some even have other negative effects on the environment in addition to that. A bunch of selfish, hateful animals. That's my comment, though not in the article. Well, anyway, quote, Cultivated meat is different. It's not made by slaughtering an animal and butchering it into different cuts of meat. Instead, it's made using cells taken from a living animal that can be grown into meat in a lab. The cells are housed in a medium that contains the nutrients that are needed to grow the meat. The cells are kept in an environment that maintains the right temperature and oxygen level for them to multiply. Through this process, tissue forms that can be harvested once it has grown big enough. While the end result looks like a raw piece of chicken, duck, or other meat you'd get by slaughtering and butchering, it only needed a small number of cells from a still-alive animal to be made. There's also only so much meat you can get from one animal. The cells, on the other hand, can be used again to make more servings. Now, I'm not lying when I say that this makes me feel physically ill to talk about. This is literally eating what I would call a tumor. A bunch of amorphous multiplying cells. So this is meat grown from meat cells of some animal. So it's not vegan. It's technically meat. But animals aren't harmed or raised or slaughtered. They're just, uh, I guess, biopsied or something. So in November 2022, the FDA said that you can safely eat it. They didn't say you should, just that you could. As for the nutrition aspect, apparently the nutrition profile of the tumors will depend on the company. Well, that alone makes me really question what we're getting. If I eat chicken, the nutritional value of chicken is pretty well known. If I eat lab-grown chicken, I guess it depends on the company. Why? But of course, nutrition isn't the focus. Feeding the planet isn't the focus. Cruelty-free meat isn't really the focus. The environment is the focus. If you use lab-grown cultivated meat, you're going to use over 75% less water and over 60% less land not to mention a smaller carbon footprint, since we're not raising livestock anymore. But what do we know about it? Nothing. That's what we know about lab-grown meat, just, just nothing. In 2020, Singapore became the first country to approve the sale of lab-grown meat. We literally have no long-term data on what this will do to humans. Animals are created by God, and we were told by God that we could eat them. Using a chemical soup to multiply cells into a meat blob... That's not the same. I've got to wonder how much can go wrong and go undetected in this lab meat. I've got to wonder if we consume something that has a mutated protein or mutated amino acids. What happens then? What kind of chemicals exactly are they using in place of blood to ensure these cells continue to live and grow? As for the environmental aspect, well, that's not actually as clear as our article would like us to believe either. In fact, found on devdiscourse.com from March of 2023, headline, Is lab-grown meat better for the environment? Well, it doesn't appear so. A life cycle analysis was performed by the University of California, Davis, and they concluded that lab-grown meat emits 4 to 25 times the greenhouse gases as real meat production. A Dutch study, however, said that lab-grown meat is three times more efficient at turning crops into meat than the most efficient animal, the chicken. Now, this to me sounds like apples and oranges, with the Dutch study looking at a very narrow view of the entire process. Either way, I don't really care. We're talking about a meat versus a Dr. Frankenstein experiment. Now, digging deeper into this article, we read, quote, being produced from cloning a single cell type, for example, muscle cells, lab-grown meat will not inherently contain several key nutrients found in meat, 
such as fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin A or vitamin B12, which is produced by the gut bacteria in animals. Therefore, these nutrients will either need to be added to the raw product or the lab-grown meat should be formulated with plant-based alternatives as a hybrid product to contain a similar nutrient profile. Even then, there might be differences in the digestibility and bioavailability of the added nutrients, which is another area worthy of further investigation. See, we're, we're not even growing meat. We're growing a tumor. I'm telling you, my gut tells me that this lab-grown stuff will cause brand new cancers, illnesses, and issues. We have got to stop screwing around with our food supply. Well, at this point, I have my blinker on, ready to take a turn to a another direction of related information, but I think we've covered what we need to here. I'll move this other stuff to another segment sometime in the future, hopefully. For now, though, let's put a bow on this whole food thing, shall we? As I said, feeding the globe isn't a problem. A century ago, and for all of human history, starvation was a leading cause of death. Because of innovations, industrialization, and science, real science, that problem has gone away. The only reason we have any people group that suffers from malnutrition or a lack of food today is because global elites and warring governments would rather see people, sometimes our very own people, starve rather than give up some perceived power. We produce way more than enough food to feed the globe. If we all work together, that is. The United States, because of the very thing that the environmentalists hate, has fed more of the world than any society ever before. God told us to fill up the planet. The implication would be that the planet full of people could be fed. The greenhouse gases produced, specifically the carbon dioxide, is just gobbled up by the plant life, creating food for man and beast, and oxygen for man and beast. If the planet warms a few degrees, even better. Mankind will adapt, whatever that means, probably nothing to be honest. The sea levels will be fine, vegetation will thrive, mankind will be fed with real food, real plants, real animals. Kent Hovind, a creation scientist, speaks about the miracle of creation and the clear design down to the amino acids and proteins that make up all living things. He says, quote, the proteins in your body, you have a protein for your fingernails, protein for hair, protein for eyeballs, protein for skin, protein for muscle. All proteins are made from the same 20 amino acids. That's a fact. All right, now let me break in here. Evolution says this is due to a common ancestor, but the Bible says that this is because we have a common designer. Back to Kent, quote, The proteins are all based on these 20 basic amino acids, and again, that's so the brown cow can eat the green grass who gives the white milk, and I churn it and get yellow butter, and I eat it and get blonde hair, because these 20 amino acids get broken up, like chopping up the letters of a newspaper, and reassemble to make a new protein. So when you eat something, your body breaks it down and reassembles it into a new protein that you need. See, we've been given a perfect system, and although this world is marred by sin, this system still works nearly perfectly. And sure, there are some glitches, there are some people that can't deal with certain foods, but statistically, this system works perfectly. And this system works sustainably. The water cycle ensures the ground is water. The oxygen cycle works perfectly to ensure plants take in what we exhale and the plants exhale what we take in. The food chain works perfectly where animals eat plants or animals eat animals and we can eat plants or animals. Plants have seeds, animals have babies, and the cycle continues and will continue to work until the earth is remade. And to be honest, I'm not sure what that will bring. I don't know what will happen then. Nobody really knows how any of these things were ultimately designed to work to begin with. But what works now will continue to work, and what works then will work perfectly. So if you want to eat only vegetation, you can. 
If you want to eat fake veggie bacon soy cheese plant burgers on cruelty-free, cage-free, all-organic buns, you can. If you want to eat bugs, seek help first. And then if you still want to, well, you can. And if you want to eat lab-grown, meaty, mutated cell tumors grown in a nutrient-rich chemical soup, don't. Please, please don't do that. I mean, it can be done. Your body can take it in and pass it through, but... But I'm begging you, please don't do that. We have no idea what this Frankenstein's monster of meat food will do to humans in the long term. So because of God's design, you can do all these things, but because of God's design, you don't have to. You can eat plants as designed. You can eat meat from the animals as designed. You can do that healthily. You can do that sustainably. And you can do that with absolutely no guilt. If you want to eat the other stuff, do it. But do it because you can and you want to. Don't. Do it because you think you're saving the planet or because you buy the lie that real food isn't sustainable or plentiful. God's given us a fantastic system, a system that in no way could have just developed on its own through the explosion of everything and random chance and mutations. The reason it works is because it was designed to work. Trust God. Trust what God has given us. As you hopefully have learned in this segment, if not before, there's literally no better system and there's no improvement that's needed. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. Well, here we are again. Let's just dispense of all the formalities, shall we? I know why I'm here. You know why you're here. I'm not sure why you're here, but here we are. Andy Stanley is here. He's dangerous. He believes that he's got a list of essential things that you need to believe in order to be a Jesus follower. And you want to be a Jesus follower? Not a Christian, right? Christians literally believe in the entire Bible, like fools, but not Andy. He follows the words of Jesus only, the Gospels only, sort of. By doing that, since Jesus didn't specifically address every single topic for all of history by name, Andy can feel good about ignoring a lot of the other stuff in the Bible, which makes it convenient to believe certain things about certain current politically expedient, politically driven topics. Andy is a wolf, a cloud without water, a bad fruit-bearing tree, and the vast majority of his congregation just love the scritching that he gives their itching ears every Sunday. Thus far, we've gone through six messages in his eight-part series entitled The Fundamental List. This list is simply terrible, but not necessarily on the surface, and that's part of the problem. On the surface, Andy's messages seem fine. They seem biblical, even. But if you dare to be a Berean, well, the facade quickly falls away and the subtlety and craftiness is exposed in the creation of these messages. Laid bare, these messages contain teaching that ranges from somewhat correct to twisting to lies to downright blasphemy and heresy. If you're just jumping in here, Please go back and listen to parts one through four of this little mini-series, A Fundamental Disaster. And for more, go back one more episode and listen to the segment entitled Lying Liars Who Lie. Now, admittedly, there's a lot in there. I move quickly, but thoroughly. I may not have it all correct. You may find points where you find me to be too picky, and that's fine. Go forth. Be a Berean. At least you can use these podcast segments as a springboard and then do your own evaluation. So the first six points of Andy's fundamental list with brief descriptions are as follows. Number one, Jesus is God's son and our king. Now, this is correct. 
He is. But this is the message that Andy uses to gently lob an atomic bomb into the church father's theology proper and belief structures. He rails on the God box that we all apparently carry around with us with our belief that our box contains the truth and your box is wrong. But really, a lot of the old teachings were, well, they were just thoughts and theories, and they got wrapped up in theology, and how can we be sure that those aren't toxic teachings? So we better set our God boxes down and listen to Andy. He's here to rescue us. Number two, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. This is important for the agenda of eliminating the rest of the Bible, especially that squidgy Old Testament with that old fuddy-duddy angry God that, let's be honest, none of us really like. If Jesus shows us what God is like, then we don't need all that other God stuff. We can look at only Jesus and we'll get everything we need. He also makes an interesting claim that although the entire Bible might be inspired, we're silly to believe that all the Bible is equally important. I mean, clearly the Gospels are more important because there are four of them. Yeah, I'm not joking. Number three, Jesus defined sin as anything that harms you or others. Well, this is blatantly incorrect, but in order to allow, embrace, or affirm various political lifestyles, as Andy is currently doing, if by nothing but ignoring and allowing what's going on in his church, you must redefine sin and make it man-centric, not God-centric. Number four, Jesus promised justice in the end and invites us to trust him in the meantime. (sighs) Ignoring the term invite, which is a poor term to use when speaking of any aspect of a relationship between the creator and the creation, this, although sounding correct on the surface, is his way of telling us to stop being so judgy. We don't know how to judge. We're not good at it. So just love everyone and let God sort it out in the end. Uh, This is evil from head to tail. Number five, Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you to God. This was probably the least bad of the sermons. Sort of. But it's hard to have a Christian essentials list without this on the list, and it's hard to screw it up too badly. He did make up a few points to feed his agenda, however. First, people at the time of Jesus were stupid and illiterate, actually claiming they didn't have a Bible to read. Not sure what the scriptures are that keep getting referred to, but okay. And second, he claims that Jesus can and did just forgive people at random. No faith, no repentance, just an Orca Winfrey deity forgiving sins for his entire audience. And number six, the church is God's agent of transformation, personally, culturally, and globally. Again, this sounds okay on the surface. But when we dig in, we find that it uh, at least appears their adherents of the little God's doctrine, claiming that we, the church body, are the incarnation of God now that Jesus has left the building. Now, I've left out a lot. You'll want to go back and listen if you haven't already, but for the rest of us, we must soldier on. Message number seven. (laughs) Ready? Eh, Yeah, me neither, but here we go anyway. So Andy starts off with a brief account of being the son of Dr. Charles Stanley. Now, this was actually slightly amusing, as Charles Stanley, love him or hate him, is a huge name in the world of evangelicalism. I think of Charles as a solid 
country-style preacher. He wasn't theologically deep, but he was solid. I didn't agree with everything he preached. I can't imagine anyone agrees with everything anyone preaches, so no shocker there. And I think there are a large number of better choices to listen to than Charles, but overall, I have no doubt when looking at his fruits, when listening to his preaching, that he was a saved man and he is in heaven today. Andy starts with the awkward encounters he would have being introduced as Andy, then being further introduced as Dr. Charles Stanley's son, and how people that were happy to meet him were then very happy to meet him. And it would be very difficult to live in and break out of the shadow of a man with that kind of celebrity, to be sure. Now, Andy states that because of who his dad was, people made an instant association because of that name. And Andy, by no fault or pressure of Charles, felt that he had a large responsibility or accountability to protect that name by his actions and words. Remember those two words, association and accountability. They'll become important later. That was the hook. Because we can't have a sermon that starts with scriptures, we must have a hook to start sermons these days. So he goes through the same basic introduction and recap of what in the world we're doing here and how different traditions believe different things, etc., etc., etc. And of course, he must hit his claim that each generation, new or novel ideas, are woven into Christianity. And look out, those may be bad. They may even be toxic or harmful. And some of these have even made it to dogma or doctrine. I mean, do you even know what you believe? You better, because if you get it wrong, well, mean people may say you're not a Christian. Well, that's what this series is about. It's about peeling back all that silly theology and making this easy for you. Andy states, quote, When non-essentials, when non-essentials begin to characterize or define a church or a church brand or a denomination or any expression of Christianity, when non-essentials characterize and define a church brand, honest, thoughtful people eventually step away from that church, from that denomination, from that faith expression. <sighs> Give me a second. They step away, not because they quit believing in God, and they step away not because they quit honoring the Bible. They step away not because they don't believe what they've always believed about Jesus. They step away because something about their faith tradition, their expression of faith, the Christian faith, just doesn't seem right. And in some cases, they begin to deconstruct, deconstruct their faith, which basically means they step out of organized religion to kind of sort out the essentials from the non-essentials to figure out what's actually fundamental, what's actually foundational, what truly represents first century Christianity. Okay, look, I know that in many, probably at this point, most modern-day seminaries, they focus as much, if not more, uh, time on the method of presenting yourself and presenting your message as they do on the actual content of the message. But is one of the classes something like repeating your point as many different ways as possible 101? I mean, seriously, if you watch most of the modern-day big-name pastors these days, you'll see that they dress very similar, they speak very similar, they use the same cadence, they put the emphasis in the same places, they use a lot of the same pauses and facial expressions, etc., etc. This is taught. The ability to capture attention, relate to the world, and grow your congregation is given a much higher priority than it ever should have been. Now, I say this because it's hard to find a place to cut off a quote with these guys. They are literally the preaching version of modern worship. It just keeps going and going and going with the same basic chorus or refrain or just a single line or nothing at all, but it just keeps going and please make it stop and the guitar player's fingers are bleeding, the drummer's down to one stick. Please, please somebody make it stop. But 
But no, it's not going to stop, and neither do these preachers. Okay, rant over. Well, this rant over on this topic for now. So notice what he said in that quote, if you can remember, after I went off on my little tirade. First, he mentions the non-essentials, as defined by who or whom, that would be my question. Well, by Andy, of course. And as we just reviewed, if his list of essentials thus far inversely defines the non-essentials, well, Andy, I don't trust you to make that call. Second, Notice how he panders. He knows that he's got a church that's made up of people that are soft Christians or new Christians or non-Christians that don't like those mean, judgy churches. And those people sitting out there are honest, thoughtful people that have stepped away. Those that have been hurt by those mean churches just because they didn't believe everything in the Bible the way the church or denomination did. Third, Notice that they didn't quit believing in God. They didn't quit believing in what they've always believed about Jesus. And remember, Jesus is God's representative now, so you can ignore the God thing. Just believe what you believe about Jesus. And they never quit honoring the Bible. Not believing, honoring. Now, why the change of word? Well, it was done on purpose. I guarantee that. See, Andy doesn't believe the Bible. He honors it as a holy text, but he doesn't believe that it's all true or infallible or inerrant, and he definitely doesn't believe it's all applicable. Fourth, look up Christians that deconstructed their faith. You'll find the famous ones because they're the ones that announce it and they're the ones that people care about. And Andy's correct. They do step out of organized religion. They do sort out what's fundamental and what's not fundamental, but it's based on their definition and their feelings. To deconstruct your faith is simply to admit that you aren't now, nor were you ever saved. You played a part, but you couldn't sustain the conscious or subconscious lie, and the world finally won over. And now you need to decide what things you like and don't like, and then create your own little mini personal cult out of that. And he speaks about deconstruction as a positive thing, a way to get back to the base, but it's really nothing but a modern day term for going apostate. Let's continue. And as stated, he then applies it to his audience, right? This may be you. You still believe. You still have faith. You just had to get away from that organized religion stuff. Quote, but there's your faith tradition. Whether it was your church, a denomination, whatever it might be, you just begin to sense that something was just a little bit off, that the tone and the posture and the approach that they took to the Christian faith just, it began to feel to you anyway unchristlike, as if the leaders or the people that kind of led you, <laughs> uh, leaders and the people that kind of led you, it's the same thing, Andy, and that tradition or that church, they knew the Bible But you wondered sometimes if they knew Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. See, let go. Trust your feelings, Luke. As I stated in one of the previous segments, uh, not to be harsh, but who cares what you feel about it? The question isn't how the teaching or tradition or denomination or church makes you feel. The question is, is it true? There are many things in the Bible that will not make us feel good necessarily, but are they true? And this is Andy's favorite tool, or at least one of his favorites, pitting the Bible against Jesus. Sure, these leaders, or the people that kind of led you, oh, it's just awful, they know their Bible, but do they know Jesus? Well, this is a false dichotomy. This is a straw man. This is a dangerous teaching. Hopefully you can see that. 
Then he makes one of his main points that's been made the entire way through. Non-essentials eventually become obstacles, and that makes Christianity untenable and unlivable for someone. Which makes it no longer good news of great joy for all people. So again, I have to ask, where does he get the idea that Christianity is supposed to be attractive to all? Does he not understand that the good news of great joy will not be for all people? Not all people will be saved. Not all people will find the gospel to be good news. All doesn't mean every single person. It means people from all people groups, from all over the globe, a segment of the entire population throughout all of history. So after a recap of how to be a Jesus follower through the first six fundamentals, we get to the build-up to number seven, which must be taken seriously and personally. So we hit Matthew 28. This is after the resurrection. We're right at the end of Matthew, right before the ascension. Jesus going to meet the apostles in Galilee. And he interjects when in Matthew 28, 17, it starts, quote, when they saw him. And he just has to believe that they asked him all sorts of questions. Then he goes off on a tangent about how we're all going to want to ask Jesus so many questions in heaven. But the reality is we won't. Then he glosses over what could have been a sermon, a series of sermons in itself. But this is just church speak. So power past it, Andy. He says, quote, but when we get to heaven and however that works, you're not going to ask any questions. And I'm not going to ask. The only question we should ask is, why am I here? That's the appropriate question, right? Right, Andy, that is the appropriate question. Go into that. Lean into that. Why is anyone in heaven? Why did God save any of us? There's not one of us that merit that. So rather than asking, why does God only save some? We should be asking, why does God save anyone? Have you looked at your life? You you are the worst of the worst, and so am I, and so was Paul, and so is fill in the blank with your favorite theologically solid Bible teacher or preacher. Andy, or his preaching monkey Joel, who delivered, I'd have to say the best he could, messages four and six of this mess, haven't presented the gospel once. I believe one time Andy kind of skirted around it and threw down a repeat-after-me prayer, which isn't a biblical thing, by the way, but they haven't once laid out the gospel, and I have little hope that Andy will do it in this message. So yes, Andy, why are you there, or why are your congregants there, or more accurately at this point, why would you even think you'll be there? Because judging by Andy's fruits and his beliefs, and by the fact that most of his congregation sit under his teaching week after week, most of them will not be there. They will be crying out, Lord, Lord, did we not? And Jesus will pronounce that he never knew them and cast them out. No, sadly, Andy doesn't camp on or lean into or whatever term they want to use these days. And to that one, ultimately, this important question. No, no, no. He just goes on. Very sad. What a missed opportunity. Now, ironically, he said that what comes next after when they saw him, we read right by and we shouldn't read right by it. Andy is the epitome of a blind guide here. So Andy makes a point that after when they saw him, they did what we all will do. Eventually, they worshipped him. We went off on a tangent of how worshipping a man as a god or as God himself was really against the Greek and the Roman and the Hebrew culture and sensibilities. And Jesus did not resist their worship. And then the final phrase, but some doubted. And why? Because they saw him die and dead people don't come back to life. Okay. And then Jesus gives his final address and Andy says that what Jesus says is the most overlooked verse in the Bible, or at least from a standpoint of what should and could be applied. I'm going to tell you that what comes next is damning. Andy has removed any pretense at this point. His agenda is now laid bare for all to see. Quote, 
And if the church had, and if the church would embrace what Jesus says next, it would change things almost instantaneously. In fact, if you would embrace, and if I would embrace what Jesus says next, we would change. Now listen to what he said. And then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority, long pause, look around, all authority, another pause, in heaven and on earth. That would be everything, everywhere. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given, another long pause, to me. Okay, let me break in briefly. Anytime a pastor says that if we take XYZ seriously, we change everything, tune in, something's coming, and the odds are pretty good that it's bad. You will rarely find a solid exegetical pastor that will try to key you in like this. This is manipulative. When they focus on a phrase absent of context, things aren't going to go well. Now Andy starts to riff. He's going to now speculate as to what happened after Jesus made that fragment of a statement, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Quote, to which they thought, oh, so that Messiah thing, that God's final king thing, that's for real? To which Jesus would say, yeah, all authority. Get this, all authority rests in me. This is where he stops with the passage for about three or four minutes as he mixes in some other stuff basically to throw you off the trail. Here's the problem. Jesus didn't stop there. Now, we'll come back to it in a minute, but let me be clear. It's not necessarily wrong to speculate what might have been the reactions or side conversations, etc., in certain situations. We all know that not every single thing was written down. But what Andy's doing is making the apostles say something they didn't say, and infinitely worse, making Jesus say what he never said, while literally changing the intent of what Jesus said. I know I keep using this word, but this is literally blasphemy. That is using the Lord's name in vain, as he's attributing words to Jesus and intent to Jesus that he never said. The passage in full says this, quote, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There was no pause between Jesus saying, all authority was given to him, and the final command he gave while on earth, go make disciples, there was no indication that the apostles had some revelation and Jesus gave a smirk, like Andy did, which was creepy at best, and was like, yeah, boy, all authority, true that. Let's continue, then I'll wrap up my thoughts on this part of this damnable disaster. <sighs> Quote, Quick question. Do you know why? I know you've wondered. We've all wondered about this, right? Do you know why the church has been able to leverage the Bible for all kinds of harmful nonsense through the ages? Do you know why the church and church leaders and Christian people have been able to leverage the Bible to for all kinds of harmful things that end up harming other people who claim to be Christians? It's because this statement has been reduced to just another verse in the Bible, equated with every other statement or verse in our sacred text. And so the Bible, the entire Bible, became the church's authority. But the Bible says Jesus is our ultimate and final authority. More importantly, Jesus said, 
Jesus is our ultimate authority. This should literally make the hair raise up on the back of your neck. First of all, people all over the world, in all times, from all religions or belief systems, have at times used or twisted their faith to harm others in some other way. I submit to you that although Christianity has done this, it, the misuse of it, has caused the least harm of any religion as the Christian religion is self-correcting. The Bible is God's protected word. Whenever it's been misused, the defenders of the Bible fight back against those using it wrongly. Second, this push that he's on, that the Bible isn't equally important, he has no standing, no proof, no context, no text that says that, but he needs it to be true. So proof, it is in his mind. The, the lies he's feeding his sheep as their shepherd, it's, it's unfathomable. I wonder how many sitting there are just aghast at what they're hearing. Sadly, my guess is very, very few. Lastly, Jesus never once said that the Bible was to take a back seat. If that was the case, why didn't Jesus just say that? Andy has twisted the actual words of Jesus to fit his agenda of eliminating the Bible. That is his ultimate goal. Per his words, if he's correct, we could throw out everything but most of the Gospels and a small chunk in Acts. This eliminates the Ten Commandments, all moral-based laws, all sin lists, as Andy calls them. This eliminates anything that says anything about homosexuality and transgenderism, which is absolutely Andy's goal. Hurting others that claim to be Christians, that's who he's talking about. How can I be so confident? Well, if you go back to my Lying Liars Who Lie segment, you'll see that homosexuals and trannies are starting to invade and be accepted in Andy's church. In fact, and I mentioned this in the Lying Liars segment, coming in September, the Unconditional Conference put on by Embracing the Journey, hosted by Andy and North Point Church, described as, quote, this two-day premiere event is for parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. You will be equipped, refreshed, and inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind. We deeply desire this time will bring about healing and restoration. No matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. See, Andy Stanley is one of the speakers at this conference, and nearly every speaker has been openly gay-affirming, and I think we can make fairly good assumptions about the others at this point. Some topics for the breakout sessions include creating an embracing the journey parent care group at your church, understanding gender dysphoria, wrestling with theology pointing toward Jesus, the big reveal. Now, this one is responding to critical moments on the journey with your LGBTQ plus child, the transgender journey, how to have the best relationship with your LGBTQ plus child and LGBTQ plus faith stories. Understand where we are now? This entire fundamentalist has been going this direction. We'll continue with this message in a moment, but see, one of the defenses for homosexual Christians, which isn't a thing, although that's who Andy's talking about when he speaks about the Christians harming other people who claim to be Christians, one of the defenses is that Jesus never said anything about it. See, this is why Andy wants to focus only on Jesus. This is why he says he doesn't judge people, That why we shouldn't judge people. Just love them. Jesus will take care of justice at the end. This is why Andy says that Jesus is our representation of God, so we don't need to worry about what God did or said. Just look at Jesus. This is why he wants people to be Jesus' followers, 
not Christians. This is why Andy is likely hellbound. He does not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. He believes in the Jesus of his own imagination. I wonder how many people in his church know about this upcoming conference. I wonder how many know the direction he's pushing this church. If you recall, about a year ago when I covered a different Andy message, I said, and I didn't come up with this on my own, that Andy was pushing for being an LGBTQQIA2 plus affirming and accepting individual and church. I figured and said that he was going to wait until daddy died before he made his big push so he couldn't be accused of killing his dad by doing this, as there is no way Charles would have agreed with this. Well, Charles died in April. This conference was announced in January. I don't know. Maybe Charles was clearly on the way out in January. I have no idea. But here we are, right? Andy is a wolf of the highest order. He is so dangerous. He's always been dangerous. But now he's free to go all out. The restraints are off. Daddy's dead. Okay, let's keep going. Deep breath. Quote, The words of Jesus are the final words because he is our king, right? Now, as Jewish men and women sitting there listening to Jesus, let me tell you what they heard that we don't hear because we aren't Judeans, first century Judeans. Here's what they heard when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Here's what they thought they heard him say. Here's the implication of what he said, ladies and gentlemen. Moses was your guy. Torah was your text. But the king has arrived. The shadow caster is here. That's creepy language. The shadow caster is here. So when they saw him, they worshiped him. They got what we miss. And because they got what we miss, they never misrepresented the king. I've said what I've said on this, but but let me point out, his implication is that we misrepresent the king because we believe in the authority of the entire scriptures. That's what he's saying. And notice yet another trick of the Bible twister. They conveniently move things around to make them fit their worldview or their agenda. See, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said what he said. But see, Andy flipped it. It's because all authority was given to him that they saw him and worshipped him. Not according to the text, Andy. This is just filthy, just, just evil. So, Really briefly, what exactly does this mean when Jesus says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth? Well, first, the word authority is used in most of the major English translations. The KJV, however, states it as all power. Now, the word translated power in the KJV and authority in the others is the Greek word exousia. The KJV throughout the Bible translates this word as power 69 times, authority 29 times, and then either right, liberty, jurisdiction, or strength a total of five other times. Strong's defines it as possibly privilege or force, freedom, mastery, or the other various ways that it's been translated. In the John MacArthur Study Bible, all authority is defined as, quote, absolute sovereign authority, lordship overall, is handed to Christ. The Matthew Henry commentary says that the authority was the authority to send the apostles out into the world, if any were to ask them by what authority they were teaching this. And if we think about it, the next phrase is, go therefore. So Jesus was saying, go into the world. I have the authority to command you to, or possibly to release you to go into the world. Henry also says that this asserts power. That's the KJV translation, right? Universal dominion, the foundation of the Christian religion. Charles Spurgeon basically agrees with Henry, saying that when preachers preach, they preach by the authority of Jesus, if they preach correctly, right? And that means that they would have Jesus, the master, backing them up with his authority. 
But see, as I said just a few minutes ago, this is Andy pitting Jesus against the Bible. This is some sort of theological highlander. The Bible and Jesus, there can be only one. Two authorities enter, one authority leave. This is not Jesus taking authority from the Bible. This is actually Jesus being given sovereign authority over all things now that he is in his resurrected form. He doesn't wrestle authority from the Bible. If anything, he, by fulfilling dozens of prophecies, has now elevated or perfected the authority of the Bible for the Christian. But Andy doesn't really care about anything but Andy's agenda. So who cares what all those other theologians say? Andy is a Stanley and a Jesus follower, and much more enlightened. Continuing on, this is where Andy brings in his opening story. The apostles, in Andy's soap opera version of the last three or four verses of Matthew, were shocked that he was the king, and they were his posse. And Jesus said, yup, you sure are, but because of that association, they had accountability to represent him correctly wherever they go. And apparently the apostles affirmed that they understood that they had to represent Jesus rightly. And then they started asking, what now? Where are we going? Is now the time we reestablish the kingdom of Israel on earth? Is now the time we retake Jerusalem? Do we get to conquer something since you conquered death? Do we finally get to call down fire on our enemies like we tried to do two months ago? Quote, to which Jesus would smile and say, as we're about to discover, No, I got way bigger plans for you than Jerusalem. I have way bigger plans for you than Judea. I even have way bigger plans for you than this territory of Galilee. We're about to launch something for the entire world. And you, ladies and gentlemen, have no idea how big the world actually is. But you're not going to conquer anything. I'm going to send you out with an invitation. I'm going to send you out to extend the same invitation I extended to you when we first met. Then we get back to the biblical text for some reason. I mean, Andy knows everything that was going on behind the scenes. Why would we bother with the biblical text anymore? Therefore, therefore, go and make disciples. Back out of Jesus' voice, now in Andy's voice, now in this phrase, and the ones that follow, there are several participles in the Greek text, but there's only one imperative. There's only one command, and the only command is make disciples. The implication is this, as you go, as you are going, as you are living, as you are doing life, wherever you do life and wherever you travel, your responsibility, if you're going to associate yourself with me, is to make sure you're engaged in some form or fashion with making more Jesus followers. In other words, Jesus could say, if I show back up in a year, I expect there to be more of you. If I show up in 10 years, I expect there to be a lot more of you. For the rest of your life, part of your responsibility as you go, as you raise your kids, as you do life, as you age, part of your responsibility, if you're going to associate with me, is to take on the mantle of responsibility of living your life in such a way and engaging with people in such a way that you multiply yourself, you replicate yourself, and there are more of us because of you than there was before. Oh, good grief. Andy Stanley is just terrible. He's terrible. His messages could be 10 to 15 minutes max if he'd just say things one time. Oh, it's just awful. It almost seems like there would be, I don't know, a more succinct way to say this. You know, like we find in the Bible. Now, Andy keeps writing his own narrative, which 
why wouldn't you? It seems like the Bible to Andy is just a choose-your-own-adventure book. So he goes on with Jesus saying to make disciples of all nations, and the disciples would have stopped him again, asking him about even the Gentiles and the Romans, etc. Apparently all the apostles and disciples were looking around the room asking each other, you ever been to Rome? Nah, man, I've never been out of Galilee. You're telling us that you want us to make disciples, Jesus, followers of every nation, even Rome? Is this going to work in Rome? I don't think this is going to play very well in Rome. He carries on his one-man play with them asking about Samaritans, but they knew that it counted Samaritans too. Then Jesus, who finally got a word in amid all this interruption and discussion, said to baptize them. Oh, oh man, it started again. The Gentiles? Seriously? And they argued with literally their master and teacher who was dead like 40 days ago and was alive now and was giving them instructions. The natural thought is that they just talk over the top of him and interrupt him and disagree and argue with him. (laughs) I'll be honest, Andy claims to be a Jesus follower. Well, besides that being an all-out lie, he clearly has no respect for the Bible, and you can see that he has a very irreverent view of Jesus. Jesus, the risen Lord, the Messiah, wasn't just one of the guys. He wasn't their drinking buddy, but you could never tell when you listen to Andy weave his little tail. And then per his agenda, he explains that baptism was covenantal language, full inclusion. Then, quote, we're challenged sometimes with who should be in and who should be out of the local church. I'm telling you that what they felt in this moment, we can't even begin to comprehend. And of course, by now, we know exactly who he's talking about when he says that we struggle figuring out who should be in and out. So, more words in Jesus' mouth, and then we get to the part where he says to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Then, quote, Have you ever thought about the implications of this statement? I want you to teach them, guys and ladies and gentlemen, everything I've taught you. I want you to take what I have taught you, and I want you to replicate that, and I want you to live it out and I want you to teach it to the others. Remember my mountain message? Oh, hey, remember your mountain message. There was so much. I want you to teach that. Remember the thing about the log and the eye and the speck? I want you to teach that. Remember the extra mile? I want you to teach that. Remember when I told you you got to fix it with them before you try to fix it with him, that you cannot fix it with him until you fix it with them? I want to make sure you teach that. I want you to teach people to forgive regardless. I want you to teach people to be the Samaritan in that parable and not be the older brother in that other parable. I want you to teach them to do unto other people the way that you want people to do unto them. But then I want you to take it up a notch. I want you to teach people to love one another the way I have loved you. And I want you to teach them to love their enemies the way I loved you when you were my enemy. I want you to teach them to love their enemies the way I loved you after you betrayed me and abandoned me and Quit believing in me. I want you to teach them to wash one another's feet like I washed your feet. You remember that night? They're like, oh my goodness, it took forever. And we were, nobody spoke a word. And all we could hear was the drip of that water in the pan. And there's our rabbi that we thought might be Messiah on his knees. And we're in the elevated position as we sit. And he's in a not so elevated position as he washes. We'll never forget that. And you remember what I told you as I've done for you, you are to do for others. If you ever get too big for your britches, you just find some feet to wash. That's what I want you to teach. Oh, he's terrible. Just, just, he's slick, but wow, is he terrible. However, I bet Matthew is peeking over the clouds in heaven right now, just a little bit angry with God that he didn't allow him to work with Andy on his gospel. I mean, Andy's got it going on, doesn't he? I have a feeling that this is how Andy reads his Bible. He reads a few verses, 
Then he sits back and just imagines, oh, I wonder if. And then he just creates his own script, his own background actors, his own set design, his own plot. What he said isn't necessarily wrong. We are to teach these things, but Jesus exclusively did his teaching from the Old Testament. So are we supposed to teach that as well? And no, no, we're not. Perish the thought. (laughs) If you notice the theme of Andy's personal teaching parable that he created out of whole cloth, all the things that Jesus apparently wanted taught was either love, love your enemies, or judge not. All of it. And I wonder why. (laughs) It's a mystery. He speculates that if we, the church, had been teaching people exactly that, to obey what Jesus taught, not just believe, but obey what Jesus had taught, the church would be better and healthier. Then the final phrase, the promise by Jesus to be with them even to the end of the age, although it takes him forever and much more script writing to get there, and it clearly doesn't mean what you think it means because you've always been taught wrong, quote, we misapply this because we have taken these verses and we have just allowed them to blend in with everything else in the text, but they are so preeminent. They're so important. They're at the epicenter of everything that we are and what we believe as Christians. And then he focuses on who you is, as in surely he'll be with you always. See, Andy isn't focused on Jesus. Andy is focused on Andy. Andy is the most important character of the Andy gospel story featuring special guest star Jesus. Quote, do you know who you is? You is believers whose belief has feet. You is believers who understand we're partnering with our king. You are the disciple makers. Do you, I know the answer is kind of rhetorical, but do you want Jesus to be with you? Then according to Jesus, you have to be with him because he is a way bigger deal than you and he is a way bigger deal than me. And his agenda is a way bigger agenda and a way more important agenda than my personal agenda. (laughs) Is it? Is it, Andy? Because I don't think it is. Then he makes the pitch that uh, you need to give your time and resources and money to be part of the king's business of making more Jesus followers. He goes into Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and those that are actually doing something to make more Jesus followers. He thanks them. Then he says, quote, I can make this promise to you without any hesitation. Your Savior is with you because you are with him. I mean, doesn't that... Doesn't that just reek of a works-based salvation or something? Uh, Doesn't matter. And since these were Jesus' final instructions, they're fundamental. Back to the list one more time. Number seven, Jesus' followers are multipliers. Apparently, you have to believe this regardless of if you ever do it. You just have to believe it. And now Andy makes his final pitch to ditch the Bible right? The creeds, the theology, the church fathers, and simply follow Jesus and Andy's fundamentals. Quote, now maybe I'm overreading this, or maybe I'm thinking too hard about it, but I think for some people who hear a message like this, especially if you're more of a traditional Christian, you may be thinking something like this, Andy, and I don't take this personally because I'm saying it, not you, but Andy, I don't really like your list. I think your list is ridiculous. You've just made all of this up. 
Okay, Andy, let me just tell you, I'm a little bit more theologically astute than you and the people in your churches, if you call it that, because I like the Apostles' Creed. I like the Apostles' Creed or some of the other creeds, but I like the Apostles' Creed better than your list. And some of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then I'm adding this, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son and our Lord. And it goes from there, all these things that we believe. And you know what? The Apostles' Creed, most of the creeds are way more theologically robust than our fundamental list, but you look it up if you don't believe what I'm about to say. That creed, its origins, and as it evolved through time along with some of the other creeds, were created in an era when the church was condoning all manner of unchristlike activity. When the church substitutes belief for obedience to what Jesus taught, then the church substitutes belief statements or creeds. When the church substitutes belief for following, obeying what Jesus taught, people always get hurt. But worse, they get hurt in the name of Jesus. Oof, I mean, this is just, it's just blasphemous. It's just, it's just blasphemous. And then he wraps up by repeating himself about Jesus having all authority and how we're supposed to use our time and money and resources to intersect with the time and resources of others. And then in heaven, we can point to people and say, I was part of his story. I wasn't all of her story, but I was a part of her story, and so on and so on. Because again, Andy is all about Andy, and you need to be all about you and follow Jesus, but mostly it's about you. And of course, Andy sees no reason to change the theme to wrap it up. Quote, so be a multiplier. It's how the world changed, and come on. I don't know your story, but if you're a Christian, it's how you were changed. Somebody invested their time in you, whether it was a parent or a grandparent or a Sunday school teacher or somebody you met at work. So let's do for others what others did for us. And if we do, he will be with us because we have decided to be with him. Fade to black. So as Andy did with his other so-called fundamentals, this one sounds right on the surface, but when you understand Andy's definition of Jesus follower and understand what he means by multiplying those, <laughs> wow, what we don't need are people that are Andy-style Jesus followers, especially Andy-style Jesus, Andy-style Jesus followers, or as you might know them, not Christians. We have plenty of those. Okay. Seven painful points down, one more painful point to go, and it's it's a good one. That'll be next time. As again, I ran this segment long, just as the points are all building on each other, the heresy seems to be building on each other as well, and there's just so much to cover. And believe it or not, there's even more that I haven't covered here. Well, I guess as before, you might want to get a cold rag for your head, alternate cold and heat on whatever sore muscles or joints you have, and some, uh, I don't know what, lemon tea or something for your vocal cords from yelling, what, so many times. And I'm sure your pupils will dilate correctly again, given some time and rest. And, and right around the time you feel all rested and healed up, well, it'll be time for part six, covering message number eight and wrapping this up, thus being done with Andy for at least a while again. So at least you have that to look forward to. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.